0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. of well, you know that we've been looking at Jack Hartsfield's book for almost two years now, The Wise Heart. It's quite a nice book if you haven't looked at it. And we're now reviewing the last chapter, taking each chapter over these years, to as a way to begin reflecting on our practice of Path of Awakening. The way that, uh, that Jack Hornfield organizes the book is in each chapter he articulates one, sometimes two, principles of Buddhist psychology, distilling some of the basic principles from the Buddhist teachings, and it. Jack Marcos reflecting on those principles in light of Western psychology. So this last chapter, is, as you might imagine, is on the experience of awakening. And it's important, especially I think because People can get the wrong idea in Buddhist practice that you know the, the path is just about abandoning aversion, seeing aversion and abandoning in it, seeing greed in the mind and abandoning in it, seeing delusion in the mind and abandoning in it. And it doesn't seem very juicy or exciting. to take a lot of work. And on the one hand, the practice, this path, is a lot of work. There are you know in most of our minds a lot of habits, a lot of conditioned habits that are unskillful, that cause us and other people suffering. And we do have every incentive to recognize them and to do whatever we can, not to be confused, not to be identified with our anger, with our greed, with our delusion, whatever it might be. But there's this whole other side of practice, just as important, just as relevant, which is about recognizing the beautiful qualities of mind and learning how to water those beautiful qualities, to set them in motion, to help them develop, to maintain them. One of the many lists in the Buddhist teachings is something called the four exertions, the four ways we make effort. So the Buddha says there are four ways to make effort. We need to learn how to abandon unwholesome states and prevent unwholesome states from arising. Those are two. And the other two, like I just said, we need to learn how to develop and maintain wholesome states. So that's one of the ways to think about awakening it isn't so much about the cessation of everything that's unwholesome, which is how the Buddha often talked about the past. An awakened mind is a mind in which greed, anger, and delusion have ceased. No longer present. So, I think it's fair to say there are people in this room, maybe all of us in this room, who have had moments, at least to a large degree, when the forces, the habits of greed and aversion and delusion had ceased. They just weren't active in our minds. Right? Can you imagine a moment like, uh, there are some moments when we're in awe, we see a beautiful sunset, for example. Not just an ordinarily beautiful sunset, but something that for us stands out. And the mind is in a state of awe. It's, in a sense, absorbed in the beauty of the sunset, so fully aware and present that its habit of being greedy, its habit of being aversive, this habit of being disconnected, diluted, it's just not they're just not active. Now if we had the reflective presence in that moment, like not only knowing the beautiful sunset, but knowing that we're knowing the beautiful sunset and knowing the mind that's knowing the beautiful sunset. So if we had that reflection, we would have it would have been more powerful because it would have been there would have been some instance, oh, this is what a liberated mind feels like, looks like, tastes like. This is what it's like when there's no greed, aversion, or delusion, active, actively coloring, actively affronting the mind. It looks like this. So even though we may have bumped up, experienced these moments, doesn't mean we were clearly aware that that's what was happening. Because then we would have seen, it wasn't about the sunset. It was about the purity of the mind knowing the sunset. It wasn't the sunset that made the moment so beautiful. Even though that's what we think in a conventional sense, it's really a diluted sense. We attribute the freedom we experience to the particular conditions of the moment. And this is a real turnaround in practice where we begin to realize that what's of real value is never the conditions of the moment, never sort of what we're seeing, what we're thinking, but it's really about the nature of the mind that's experiencing in that moment. In particular, it's about the purity of the mind. The mind is pure in the sense of free of greed, anger, and delusion. So we can talk about it in that negative sense, like what isn't there, But then we can also talk about it in what is there, because what is the absence of greed, anger, delusion? What does that look like in a mind? And that's what we mean by love. Now, not the normal way we use the word love, which usually is just we use the word love as a synonym for attachment. I love you, which is another way of saying, I need you in my life and I'll be really hurt if you leave me. But that's not love, that's attachment, you know? I love hamburgers, you know, that's not love, or even I love the sunset, that's also attachment, usually. So, we want to understand love as a universal quality, and that's really, I think, the point of this chapter that Jack Kornfeld wrote is, to think about awakening, the fruit of awakening, the fruit of a mind free of great anger and delusion to think about it and then to realize it as the natural expression of love. This is what we mean by love. That it's a real realization, awakening, because we have to completely transform our concepts of love. Even compassion and joy, all of these words have been corrupted. Like for example, joy, we tend to associate the word joy with excitement, things that are exciting. Being at valley Fair on the roller coaster, that's exciting, you know. uh, Looking at dirty pictures, that's exciting, (laughs) you know. You feel energized. Doing something dangerous is exciting. You know, having a fantasy of of any kind, it's exciting. So greed is exciting. Wanting revenge is exciting. We get a lot of joy from these neurotic places in our lives, right? We tend to keep going back to them precisely for that reason they give us joy. When we think about things we shouldn't be thinking about, or do things we shouldn't be doing, we get energized. I hope I don't get caught. But this is not joy. It is a kind of energy but it's a kind of energy that comes with a contraction in the mind. And we can notice that if we're not transfixed on the energy that we get from sort of greed, anger, and delusion, we notice the consequence, the tightness that comes when this is where we're going for our life energy. This is how we stay awake. I mean, just in a little way, I'll notice, you know, if I'm home, I'm kind of bored... You know, I'll I'll go to a couple of websites that have properties for sale up on the North Shore or South Shore or in the woods, you know, and I'll look at places. And for a while until I get exhausted, you know, until the greed the exhaustion of the greed overwhelms the excitement of possibility. You know, for a while I feel energized. The possibility, you know, it's like Mark who becomes the one who owns, who has, who is up there, who you know, whatever that fantasy is about for me. And we feel enlivened. In the same way, it's like life, it reinforces this idea of being deadened by our ordinary life. So we need some medicine, we need something outside of the box, whatever it is, whatever our fantasy, you know, or the way our mind's condition, where it goes. You know, generally we all have at least a handful of ways we go to get juiced up. But if we're really honest and mindful, we'll see that those ways are toxic. Either in a big way or at least in a subtle way. They're exhausting. They're oppressive. The mind being dependent on that for energy is oppressive. I mean, it's anything that depends on something other than how it is right now is oppressive. Like, not being able to find life energy here and now is oppressive. Always having to do something with my mind to feel alive is impre- uh, oppressive. So the whole idea about learning about love and compassion and joy is we're discovering something that's inherent. It's the whole point of this training. So this is the interesting thing about the way the Buddha laid out the path. Things like loving-kindness recognizing it, developing it, maintaining it. Joy, recognizing it, developing it, maintaining it. Compassion, recognizing its potential, developing it, maintaining it. It's both the mean and an expression of awakening. So it's like the path, but it's also the idea. It's like where we want to get to. We want to get to this place where the only emotion moving through our heart, heart and body the only things enlivening this life is love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. These emotions replace all the usual suspects, you know, envy, jealousy, anger, boredom, irritation, defensiveness, lust, greed, wanting, neediness, the distraction, delusion, and you know, all the different forces that Dominate our conditions, habit mind are going to be replaced with these immeasurable, boundless sources of life energy. Where does loving kindness run out? Where does where's the end of compassion and joy and equanimity? We find, you know, when we are greedy and fantasizing about what we want, or averse, uh, averse and fantasizing about and what we'd like to do to the person that makes us mad, we'll find, I'm sure you have, that it's exhausting. That it really, in a way, eats up the heart, binds up the heart, and it isn't long before we feel really yucky. And generally, at some point, we drop it, Mm -hmm. thankfully. Have you ever worked up a head of steam around anger and then it just went on forever? No, it eventually ends because it's unsustainable. It's so toxic and heavy and oppressive that it burns out its own support. But we pick it up again, and I think the reason, like I said, the reason we keep going back to that place, even though it ended up burning itself out, it was so oppressive, the imprint it made in the mind is that we remember the sort of early stages of the anger or the grief, and we felt alive. You know how it is when we first remember somebody who really did something bad to us and we're just starting to get resentful again? Oh. You know, and it, because there's a very clear sense of self, you know, and it feels good in a neurotic sort of way. <laughs> and that sense of self feels like it has a purpose, it has meaning. I hate you, I want revenge, I want, you know, you to suffer in some way. Oh, I really want that. If only I had that, I'd be happy. So we need to learn about, see that, and then we need to learn and see this other possibility. But we have to cultivate it. That's why I like at the end of the sit tonight, we did that 10 minutes of more formal loving-kindness practice. In a way, we're, we're scratching the surface, we're digging a little bit, we're making the effort to develop the authentic experience of loving kindness, a universal loving kindness. Now, it might start by just recognizing something really basic, like, I care about this life. Or somebody might start by just bringing their cat to mind. you know, visualizing it sitting there on their couch, on their bed, and just recognizing in their heart this very natural, uninhibited thing: I care about you. And it's like we're tapping into something universal. Initially, we use the image of the cat, our niece, our auntie who was always there for us, some mentor. And we bring to mind somebody easy to love. And there, it's just a, a skillful means, it's a technique. We use that person, we remember that, we care about them. But what we're really looking at, what we're really mindful of, is the caring. Not so much, I care about you, but that there's caring, and so we're distilling. We use the image of the person initially, and sometimes for quite a long time, but we want to get to the point where what's really clear to the mind is this upwelling of caring, loving, appreciating. It's a, an immeasurable movement of life energy meaning it doesn't run out. When you really tap into whatever you want to call it, love or whatever you want to call it, you'll see that as you look at it, it grows stronger. It's like blowing on embers. And it and it starts to have this quality of upwelling. And you'll see it doesn't have an end until the mind gets distracted. You know, the mind take something else is more important, and it forgets. It literally forgets this, even though it's the most wonderful thing. It's true. It forgets it and starts to think about this. Like one of the ways, one of the obvious ways you forget it is: there you are, and for the first time in your life, or for a long since uh, for a long time, having not felt it, you feel this very natural upwelling of compassion, of joy, of love. There it is, and then you to think, oh I really like this. What can I do to have this all the time? See that's how we separate from it. Now we're back into this conception of a me who wants to be a loving person instead of just being aware of the loving. And the thing about this loving is it's not personal. It's a natural movement of the heart and the, once we Conceive of it being personal, then we've already removed ourselves from it. We're already in the process of forgetting it as a real thing, and now it's a conceptual thing. Now it's in a sense of imitation of it. And sometimes this imitation can look quite good. So I'm not, and in generally in our conventional world, people who are imitating compassion and joy and kindness. Are a lot better to be around than people who are imitating hatred and jealousy and fear, you know. So a lot of the times that's just what we're doing is we're acting out our idea of compassion from a self-centered point of view or our idea of loving kindness or goodness or whatever, whatever it might be. But we want to learn about this other place. And so the technique, and we'll go through this a couple, for a couple more weeks, um, actually, I won't be here next week, by the way. Kevin Griffin, a, a wonderful Buddhist teacher and Buddhist author, will be visiting. He'll be teaching Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, and then a day long on Saturday. Wynn and I, my wife and I, will be visiting our mother-in-law in New Jersey, so we'll pick it up uh, the following week. Um, then how we use the formal practice of loving-kindness or compassion or joy It's basically we're using a technique to uncover something that's universal. Like the Buddha says, one of the passages or lines he said over and over again in his discourses through his 45 years of teaching, calling these uh, qualities immeasurable, abundant, exalted, and measurable. So that's a discovery, we're discovering that kindness is abundant, exalted, and immeasurable. It has its own tendency to fill the space, to be able to meet any experience. Like, if you really had a loving, compassionate, joyful heart, what situation couldn't you meet and respond to? And that's that image that's used in the Buddhist tradition that this quality of awakening, because in this case, it's not different than wisdom. This description of loving kindness is just the more expressive side of wisdom. Wisdom is sort of the understanding side of awakening and love or metta is the expressive side, expressive side of awakening. The way awakening looks when it interacts with, you know, our garbage can that's full and needs to be taken outside or a person who's frustrated with us, or, you know, some really beautiful situation. It's that capacity the heart has to completely meet the situation and to respond appropriately. And can you imagine a situation where appreciative joy and loving kindness, you know, basic friendliness and compassion and equanimity wouldn't be enough to handle, to be appropriate? Like what situation would you need more than those four emotions? So the basic technique is to see, like, um, how can I, even if it's just a very faint seed-like version of loving kindness, how to recognize it right now in our experience, and then. The way we blow on the embers, the way we develop it, and then eventually maintain it, is one, having the confidence that it's already here, and then however faint it is, however obscured it is, to cannot be confused. To keep turning the attention to the authentic experience, I care. I care about you, I care about this life, but just this movement of the heart to include. Right? Normally it's like my mind, my heart, it's going out into the world so it can grasp what it wants. See what it doesn't want. But now we're just saying yes to everything. We're including everything. Somebody's really mean, yes. It doesn't mean that I'm going to let you be mean to me, but what I'm taking in, what I'm receiving, what I'm willing to be close to is, given how things are, you can't be other than how you are right now. I understand that. That I understand that your meanness, your lack of skill is arising because of causes and conditions and I say yes to that because it's already this way now. You are already under the influence of all of these conditions making you act in this way. And if I completely say yes to this, then I might be able to respond to your negativity in an appropriate way. So in that moment, compassion and equanimity loving kindness joy it always begins by being willing being able to say yes so we find that way that we can say yes for so the formal technique we bring to mind the person who's easiest for us to say yes to and sometimes that will be yourself then you bring yourself to mind and you say this is this life right now yes I care about or you bring in mind somebody you need to love. So you can just choose where you begin, and you should be completely pragmatic. Like, when you're doing it as a formal practice, just start where it's easy. It really doesn't matter where you start, because remember, it's not about the object. So if you're bringing yourself to mind, it isn't about the love you have for yourself. It's about discovering that your heart cares. And you're just using yourself in order to recognize that the heart cares or you're using your niece, or you're using your cat, or you're using whatever, to remember that this heart has the capacity to say yes, to include. And then you're just looking at that capacity. That's the blowing on the embers, and you're strengthening it. So the phrases that we use in the formal practice, it's just a way of focusing the mind on that capacity of the heart to care, to include, to say yes to life. It's really realizing or discovering the heart that isn't caught in aversion, isn't caught in greed, isn't caught in disconnection or delusion. Instead is awake and including and understanding and responding. And so the phrases, you know, and these are just the four traditional phrases for loving kindness. And of course when you're doing more of a compassion practice, what you're connecting to is suffering then you change it so that the the phrases really help the heart connect to the suffering. Or if you're seeing a lot of beauty and joy, then your phrases change. So I'll just review the phrases, but remember, there's a lot of room for creativity. In our assist tonight, I gave you the phrases for loving-kindness. Generally, it starts with, may you be safe and protected, or if you just change the pronoun if you're working with yourself, may I be safe and protected. And then you talk about the heart. May your heart or may my my heart be happy and peaceful in the body. May this body be healthy or may your body be healthy and strong, free from pain. And then more about living our lives. May you take care of your life with ease and joy. And you're visualizing the person or yourself handling all the twists and turns with skill and ease and joy. And then again and again and again. Now, if who you bring to mind, yourself or someone else, is experienced a lot of difficulty or you're in a place where someone is suffering a lot, then you change the phrase. You know, it's like the way your heart is going to connect, it's going to start with, oh, I care about the suffering. I care about your pain. I care about your loss. I care about the confusion you have. Or just if you're talking about yourself and just change the pronoun. I care about my pain care about my confusion, this confusion right here. So you name the pain, you name the difficulty or the suffering, and then you follow up with a beautiful wish. Because even though I can be close to, to your suffering, I also wish for your release. May you find ease with these difficult circumstances. May your heart be peaceful with things as they are. May you find freedom, even in difficult times. May your heart be open and free, even in these difficult times. But that's a nice wish. And you see how it really helps us be close to the person. We're not saying, God, I wish that didn't happen to you. Because, I mean, it's true, we do wish that it didn't happen to you. But we want to wish them ease whether or not things get better, because we don't know whether things are going to get better. So even though we may, and it's really okay to say, may you be free from the suffering, we also want to say, may you be at ease regardless of what happens to you. May your heart be happy and free regardless of the twists and turns in your life. And then if you see, bump into somebody who has a lot of joy, or you're just feeling a lot of joy, then you just want to appreciate that joy. Your joy makes me happy, may it continue, may it increase, may it never end. Now you don't know whether their joy is going to continue and increase and never end, but there's just this sense of, I appreciate your joy, and no matter how big it gets, it's just going to make me happy that you're having happiness. Even if we don't feel so good about how someone's happy, like they just bought a big SUV, and we think big SUVs are wrong, (laughs) but they're really happy feeling safe and strong in their big car. For a moment we we don't need to focus on the environmental impact. We can just see that this person is happy. And their happiness makes me happy. And it's true. In a relative sense, in a very simple sense, when somebody's happy, we can be happy. They don't have to be happy in the way that makes us happy. And we wish that their happiness continue, And be free of any conditions that may your happiness continue and have nothing to do with whether you have an SUV or not, right? Because that's where we're going with that wish, that appreciation. So as you experiment formally and informally with loving kindness and just feeling empowered, the important first step is to have at least some faith or confidence that this heart, this mind, right here, as it already is, no matter what kind of funk you're in today, or grumpy mood you're in today, that this heart has the capacity for unlimited joy, happiness, and love and compassion. And if you don't think so, ask yourself very clearly, what actually is in the way? Is there something in the way? And you'll see, the only thing that's in the way are beliefs. I'm no good. Life hasn't been good enough or fair enough to me. I've got this very scary thing I'm facing. Well, okay, let's just say we have a scary... We just yesterday got a diagnosis of cancer or something terrible like that. So, and, I, and then somebody said something like I just said, you know, that do you have any faith that unlimited loving-kindness, happiness, joy, equanimity, compassion is available. And then get no, because I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. I don't want this to be happening, you know. And then the question is, well, can we care about that terrible thing that's arisen in our lives? Can that unlimited quality of love meet that fear, that terror, with compassion Oh, this is scary. I care about this fear. I care about this vulnerability, this terror. I really care about this. I don't know what to do and I care about that. I don't want this to be this way and I care about that. And you see, what we're discovering is that the way that unlimited, you know, this awakened quality manifests in this moment is If we're practicing, that love, that compassion can keep creating space. So instead of just getting sucked into the I don't want to, I don't want this to be happening to me, is the way that heart makes space is it realizes I care about not wanting this to be happening to me. I care about that strong, terrifying feeling. And it keeps bringing space into the moment. So the the key is, if we don't believe it's possible, we won't look for it. One of the things about when terrible things happen to us or other people, we just assume that the only thing that's true is that it's terrible. And we don't have any space in the mind and the heart that something else is also true, which is, I care about this. That I'm willing to be close to this. I'm willing to include this. It's not what I wanted. I don't want this to be happening to you or I don't want this to be happening to me, but I care about it. I'm willing to be close. I'm willing to feel what I feel. I'm willing to include it. And then we begin to see that, oh my God, it's true. That this immeasurable, unbounded, abundant, exalted, these exalted emotions, they are available and they really work. And the awakening process is literally that. We are awakening to their potential. In this chapter, uh, Jack Hart was working with one of his students, and at some point he says to her, you know, I want you to do loving kindness practice for yourself for a year. Right? So that means you know, every day for an hour, or however long she does her daily sitting practice, she goes through the phrases. You know, she sits down, she has a, sense, a felt sense of herself, this body, this mind, this life, May I be safe and protected. May his heart be happy and peaceful. May his body be healthy and strong. And may I take care of this life with ease and joy. And then again, for an hour, and again and again and again. Day after day, do retreats, all retreat long, whether you're eating or sitting or doing a walking practice, repeating the phrases for a whole year, you know. And the woman was shocked, thinking like, How self-indulgent... I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that that direction to be cultivating or discovering the capacity to be loving toward ourselves would feel wrong or indulgent or counterproductive. I mean, how are we able to love anything if we can't include this? It's the thing that's closest to us. If we can't say yes to this life, to this personality, to this body. How are we going to say yes to our kids or yes to our partners or yes to the community or yes to our politicians or the difficult people in our lives? We won't. You know, We may pretend because we think we should or we think people like people who we include or who are kind so we pretend. We have these ways of pretending, imagining that we're kind and loving people. But to actually be a kind and loving person means we have this capacity to include life as it actually is. And first and foremost is this mind, this power, this body right here. So this is the place to begin to include. So, I encourage people to just take up the practice formally. In your sitting practice you can set aside like When I sit, through my morning sit, for the first 10 minutes or so, I do loving kindness practice. I get a lot of time, more than most people's practice in the morning. So, you know, I'll give myself 10 or 15 minutes to do loving kindness practice in various ways. Sometimes formally, sometimes less formally, more kind of just organically. Sometimes I'm just with the feeling of love and compassion. Sometimes I'm repeating the phrases in my mind. I've done it enough and I've done it for intensive periods for weeks at a time that it has kind of a groove in my mind. It's relatively easy for me now compared to what it used to be to just, in a sense, rest back in the experience of loving-kindness and feel it sort of radiating to my body and then out into the world. In some ways, it's easier for me to include everybody than it is individuals. You know, so you just have to find your own way. If it's easier to begin with everybody, begin with everybody. If it's easier to begin with yourself, begin with yourself. If it's easier to begin with your cat, begin with your cat. If something is just up front in your life, like a friend who's really sick or in a difficult place, because it's already predominant in your mind, just begin there. maybe I'll leave it here. We'll pick it up for at least a couple more weeks. If we you have 15 minutes, it'd be really nice to hear from people about your own experience, formally and with love, with compassion and joy, what seems to get in the way, what seems to be able to set it loose for you, and of course, any questions that you have about the talk tonight. What comes to mind? Please say your name. I, I feel like
1: so many times greed and motivation get confused. Does it feel like
0: training, we won't be motivated to do Yeah. And same with anger, we use anger, right, to motivate us. You know, a lot of activists get active because they're mad at, you know, the bad people in the world who are doing the wrong things. So they focus their energy on those who are doing the wrong things and it motivates them to get involved and to do things. And then like I mentioned earlier, in a more general way, It's the motivation of greed and anger and distraction that move us through life most of the time. And then, as we hear about this practice, exactly as you said, Christina, doubt arises like, if I let go of greed and aversion, why would I get up in the morning? What's going to make me make that phone call or do this or do that? And you're right, we need an enlivening force in our lives. And we've gotten into this rut, this rut not, it's shared by the whole culture. So as, together as a species, probably, mostly, we're in this very big rut where we rely on greed and aversion as our motivating life force. And then so our civilization vibrates with greed and aversion. This is one of the reasons, by the way, going into the wilderness uh, where we're far away from this cultural force of greed and aversion. It's easier to, under, to develop understanding, because even though animals, in a sense, have greed and aversion, their greed and aversion isn't conceptual. So it, for us, it's like evolved uh, with a story of self, who wants, of self who's afraid of. So we have to find another enlivening, motivating force. And it has to be love. It has to be a force that doesn't involve a self drama. And that's what love is. Love is specifically, I mean by definition, in a Buddhist sense, love or compassion or joy is a motivating motivating force. It's an enlivening force or life force that arises without a self centered drama. When the, the self centered dramas are abandoned, we're not flat, lying there like uh, slugs on the floor, which is what we kind of imagined will happen. We're actually more alive, more responsive, in a sense even more who we already are, like as a personality. The personality where greed and aversion and delusion has been teased out is a really dynamic force. But now the motivation, the sort of life force is love and compassion and joy and equanimity. So, but it, it, it's an act of faith initially to learn to start abandoning this motivation and discovering and blowing on the embers and developing these motivations over here. Yeah, thanks, Christina. Yeah, see you Yeah. Bill. Bill. Well, instead of being angry and hating injustice, for if we turn that around to loving justice and work towards justice from the heart of love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. to... I mean, isn't that true? Can we be inspired? Like, can we bring to mind... I mean, this happens to me all the time. I didn't I used to cry, but now I cry quite often, and uh, or cheer up at least. And, Often it's when I see people treating each other with respect, being kind, being generous, <clears throat> being just. And it's so inspiring, it's so enlivening. Now what, happened, what would happen if we spent, you know, when we come together at Common Ground, or when you come together with your friends, before you talk about what's wrong, what would it be like if we brought to mind all the beautiful little moments we saw when human beings treated each other with respect, we're patient, we're kind, we're just, we feel so enlivened, so happy to be alive, so happy to add on to what's already good, to sort of join that stream. Yeah, thanks Bill. It's a totally different kind of energy too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's an energy that's not constructed, and that's what I said at the beginning of the talk. The motivation of greed and aversion is a constructed energy that relies on relies on us constructing the sense of self who wants something, who wants to get away from something. That's a fragile construction. It takes a lot of work to maintain that. It's exhausting. But this other kind of seeing what's beautiful and seeing what moves the heart in this uh, universal way, it doesn't run out of steam. You know, the body may get tired, but you know this this is the characteristic of a saint. They've got a lot of energy. To do good, right? And uh, when we're saintly, we have a lot more energy. And when we're really bad, caught in greed and aversion, we're you know exhausted, and we generally get sick. Yeah, I think so. Other thoughts comes to mind? Yeah, Julian. There's such an emphasis in the tradition on seeing things as they are, and with Mata, it feels like you know I'm like constructing something or creating something up, and. Now, I could do a lot of meta uh, and go through the day even doing it, but I might be causing harm and make someone feel like it's actually what's going on, and the authenticity of those that feelings. That's the shadow. And uh, I think it's absolutely true, and I think we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we really understand what this practice is about. It's not a, an overlay. We're not like putting on rose-colored glasses and pretending that everything's great and pretending that I love everybody. The, the, it's really important that people understand that the point, that the instruction is when you use a phrase or when you're bringing somebody to mind, it's not about that person. You're, you're actually practicing mindfulness, but here, like in terms of the words that Julian used, We're practicing being authentic, real. So that means we have to really authentically feel kindness, however subtle it might be, or superficial, or in a seed-like form. But we actually have to see something that's real right now in our heart. And then we just, then the work is to not forget it, because a lot of other things will come up, you know? And so, so much of Metta Loving Kindness practice is returning and making it, it's a hard effort initially, making the hard effort to find that little seed of authentic inclusivity, you know, authentic compassion, kindness, that's actually there right now in the heart and remembering it, remembering it until we lose it again and then coming back to it. So when you're using the phrases, when you're using the image of a person or the image of yourself, remember all of those things, all of that activity, meditation activity, it's all in the service of opening to something that's real, that's an actual arising, the actual arising of kindness or compassion, joy, right now in the mind-heart. Otherwise, what's going to happen is what Julian says, which is, we can whip up really nice states of mind, but they are a construction. It's a relatively beautiful construction. And I mentioned this earlier, some people have relatively horrific constructions that they live with. Nobody loves me. The world's mean and bad. Might as well take advantage of others. Um, and other people have really beautiful constructions. Everybody is divine at their heart. Everybody's good. But they're not connected to it in a real way. It's really coming from a hopefulness, you know, or wanting it to be true. So it's really a kind of desire. And that's fragile. It takes a lot of psychic energy to maintain that because there's a lot of meanness in the world and we can't let that in because it challenges this belief we have that it's all good. But method practice isn't saying it's all good. What it's saying is that this heart can include everything. Absolutely everything. And when we notice that and then learn to live out of that place, the heart that can say yes to everything, we feel quite enlivened and we become more skillful in life, more appropriate in life. Thanks for bringing that up, Julian. Other thoughts come to mind? Yeah, Gabriel. Uh, You know, we may fall in love and uh, we may be in those committed relationships, but ideally, you know, you're in a relationship with someone where you can have the conversation that the kind of love, there's sort of uh, the kind of love that we develop with somebody because we've been with them a long time. It might be just a brother or sister might be a lover, that intimacy is a particular thing, and it can be a very beautiful particular thing, but it's still not as exalted, as beautiful, as another kind of love, which also will be with our lover, but it's it's no different with our lover than with anything else. And you can even practice this. Those of you who understand what I'm talking about, you know, you can see the sort of specific friendliness and warmth and intimacy because of familiarity. You know, that we know each other, we trust each other. But we want to see the, a more universal kind of love that we have with someone. And then just see that see that it's no different, like really expand it. And you, you go back and forth and you really see that that's really what life is about not the specific kind of love. So whatever the love might be, you might have put your heart in a really wholesome sense into your home. Choosing the colors, developing the garden, making it eco-friendly, picking the neighborhood, constructing a beautiful life with the partner, the pet, the garden, the livelihood, your job, all of these things in just a really beautiful way. But all of that love we have for those objects, the partner, the home, the job, the you know group of friends, clothes, the ideas that we hold that, that are important—all of that ultimately is not important. How could it be important? There's just no way to make that stuff last. It's all coming and going. So we have to practice, whenever we have a good relationship, even a good relationship like tonight, it's going to be nice and cool. So something as simple as that. And we'll walk outside in a few minutes and you'll feel that first flavor of fall, still August. It's such a nice feeling, you know. And uh, But you want to make that transition from this object is making me happy this particular nice summer, evening, it makes me happy, to happiness that's unconditioned, love that's unconditioned, intimacy that's unconditioned. So we always want to take the nice experiences we have and see the unconditioned side of it. Otherwise, nice experience will be the cause for attachment and suffering. So we don't need to reject nice experiences. They're great. Let them come when they can really let them in, but then instead of the nice experience leading to attachment, let the nice experience be a stepping stone into the unconditioned. That the happiness we're experiencing, the joy, the love, the compassion, it goes everywhere equally. Although this situation made me realize it, now, because of wisdom, I'm taking a step and I'm realizing that the goodness that I'm experiencing in my heart isn't defined, isn't caught by this particular person or experience. So you step out tonight, you feel that beautiful feeling of being in a summer evening with the coolness. And then, instead of the mind fixing on the coolness, this is why I feel good, we look at the goodness and we see that the goodness in our heart, the freedom in the mind and heart right now, it isn't dependent on the coolness of the air or the niceness of the summer evening. But that's a realization we have to see that. That the goodness isn't and it we have to overcome a very strong belief that our happiness and unhappiness is because of conditions. And see that that's not true. That's just a strong belief that we impose on the world. Our happiness is not dependent on conditions. We just think it is. And it's a very strong belief. Right? Our media, for example, is telling us all the time that if we have this, we'll be happy. If this happens, you'll be unhappy. People who have cancer should be unhappy. People who are healthy, they basically are forgetful. You know, we don't actually, unfortunately, we're not even happy when we're healthy. We just take it as status quo. You know? And then when we're unhealthy, unha- then we're unhappy. But we should notice you know, the health and the lack of health, and we should see that happiness isn't defined by being healthy or unhealthy, being in relationship or not in relationship, being old or young. You have to leave it here. Just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Maybe we can even practice for a few seconds just resting back in the natural tenderness the natural inclusivity of the heart. Feeling the well enough of goodness that can say yes to how it is. for love and compassion and joy and equanimity to be the motivating and enlivening forces in our lives. May we be causes for peace and happiness in our hearts and in the world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.